We've all been there, in the middle of a job, everything going smoothly, until boom, you're missing a part. United Refrigeration is your one-stop shop for all your refrigeration needs. Use your computer or smartphone to go to www.uri.com at any time of day or night to check stock on your favorite brands, such as Copeland, Sporlin, Carlisle Compressors, Danfoss, Emerson CPC Boards and Sensors, Carell, Hussman Parts, and Ketotherm. United Refrigeration Inc. is home to these brands and many more. Looking for information on refrigerant conversions or refrigerant banking? Quick access links on the homepage can get you to the information you need. All approved accounts are able to see live to the minute inventory and pricing. Product not in stock at your local branch? No problem. Use the nearby stock feature to find a local branch that does have what you need. Are you looking for a branch address, phone number, or after hours number? That's all available as well. Just click on the branch locator and search for your local branch. Have a model number and looking for a replacement part? www.uri.com forward slash ARP has a vast list of quick pick replacement parts. Just search for the model number of the equipment you're working on and click the replacement parts tab. If you don't have an account, click the register button and we'll have you online in no time. With more than 400 locations in North America, each United Refrigeration branch is fully stocked for immediate pickup. Our branch employees have in-depth technical knowledge so we can help you get what you need when you need it. Visit your local store or www.uri.com forward slash ARP today. United Refrigeration Inc. has all your solutions down cold. John, how can you always have the right TV for the right application without carrying hundreds of valves on your truck? You can carry the hundreds of valves on a trailer behind your truck. That's too funny. That would work, but how are you going to do that? Maybe there's an easier way. You can use Sporlin's interchangeable cartridge style Type-Q and Type-BQ uh, TEVs. Type-Q is a conventional design and Type-BQ is a balanced port TEV. Well, come on, I need easy. How easy is it? Uh, easy is one, two, three. And it serves thousands of unique applications. So what's the process? How do I put this together? First, you select the thermostatic element assembly. Then you select the body that you need. Then you select the right size cartridge for the application to get the proper capacity TEV for your application. And then I guess it should also be said you want to actually assemble those to a single valve. That'd probably be a good idea. Indeed. These easy to select and assemble valves mean you're always carrying the right valve for the right job then. If folks want to learn more, what do they do? Uh, you can go to sporland.com and find more information on the Type Q and BQ thermostatic expansion valves. I guess that's Jim and John for Sporland signing off. And hello, everybody, and welcome to Advanced Refrigeration Podcast. Here with your host, Brett Wetzel and Kevin Compass. What do you got going on this week, man? It's been chaotic this week. Just yeah. trying. We're like the busiest we've been in forever, so... I'm running back and forth between starting stuff and piping cases and trying to fit drains under cases that don't fit because nobody thinks about that later. It's, well, they, uh, give you, they give you what, like three whole inches, right? Oh, we did some cases today. I have never seen this. They're half-inch drains. Are your hands all Edward Scissorhand? 
they're, they're, they're half inch drains coming out of the cases and the half inch no joke barely fits between the case rails so we had to blow it up to three quarter and it barely fits below the case rails like we're cutting rails out left and right with sawzalls just to get drains through but yeah then it's i don't know i'm not a big fan of piping cases i i absolutely despise it are you putting? Are, is that the the job where you were talking about where the you ended up having to convert the no, cases? No, no. This is just just straight install jobs because we are like backed up for weeks, been trying to put compressors in for weeks. This is the and then I'm trying to close out these EMS jobs that are never ending. They seem yeah. There's two more months left in a year and there is not enough time to fi- finish all this. Yeah, I what have I been doing? I so I'm home for the next two weeks except for the job fair that I'm going down to down in Houston. I actually, I'm finishing up doing all the labs. So I basically, I took the presentation that I made for the class that we're doing this year for training and I'm just going through and creating labs. So how to start up the the rack, going through the certain way to do it and just following what the manufacturer says, but also throwing some nuggets of insight in there as we're going. But that's all I've been doing. Tonight, we have a special guest, Dale Sizemore with Kaiser Warren. How are we doing, Dale? I'm good. Thanks. How you doing, Brett? Good. Dale, have you ever met Kevin Compass before? We may have met. Were you in Anaheim? Or I was not. No, no. he he works for he, he does uh, construction for Client Pros. He's a master of everything. So he basically goes through and fixes a whole bunch of stuff and runs a whole bunch of jobs and stuff like that. And no, he unfortunately he wasn't. Are you going to NSRC this year, Kevin? Maybe the one in St. Louis. Oh, okay. Possibly. Yeah, I'll be there. We'll be there in about three weeks. Yeah. Then probably not. I'll probably, I'll probably be at the Philly one then. Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Yeah, that's falling right in between a bunch of startups. I thought I was going to have a nice, easy end of the year, and it's just been like chaos. Yeah, I'll, I'll be going to the one in Pittsburgh, and I'll be going to the one out in uh, Irwindale. So I'll be at both of those. Are you going to be at all three, or are you just going to St. Louis one, Dale? No, I'll be at all three. The, right. Daniele wouldn't let me off the hook for any of those. No, actually, they. I, I think I'll be doing a little talking there at, at this year for this one. Good, good. So we'll see what Look happens forward there. To Look forward to it. Thank you. Hey, Del, tell us a little bit about yourself. How long you've been in the industry? How long you've been working for Kaiser? And what do you do for Kaiser? Yeah, so industry, I have been in commercial refrigeration since 1982. You can tell by the gray hair. I earned them all. So I've been doing refrigeration only mm-hmm. for about 41 years this year. So I've been with Kaiser Warren since 1995. It started out as field service for them in Richmond, Virginia. Did that for a couple of years. I got moved into the home office and at that time was in Conyers, Georgia. I worked there for a few years, got promoted to service manager, and I have been doing that job or some form of that job for the last 20, that was in 97 or 98. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing that job for over 20 years now. Different forms, different things, but I've always been in the service side of the business. On the technical side, I have under my umbrella all of the field service team in the field. I have a couple of managers that run that group and mm-hmm. some assistant managers. And then also we do all of warranty administration for Kaiser Warren. 
mm-hmm. under my department and service parts order entry and service parts shipping. Uh, also warranty part shipping as well. How I explain to everybody what we do is once the equipment is built and leaves the building, it belongs to us. Pretty much everything that happens in the field goes through our groups, our, our group of very talented <laughs> field service. We're technical cell support now, the, the, the guys in the field, because that's what we do. We support the equipment. We support the cell. We support the contractor. We make sure everybody's uh, comfortable with the with equipment. And there's a problem when we'll follow up with, with any issues, any field issues, whether it be contractor related or or, or vendor related or, or manufacturer related. Do you, do you guys program all the racks or do you put a base program in and let everything else roll with whoever's going to be doing this startup? Good question. All of the above. It depends on the customer. Certain yeah. customers are very prescriptive on the programming that they want. And some customers have their own pro- customers actually do third-party programming themselves or they contract themselves just like they were hire a contractor, they hire a programmer and such as Novar or Microthermal or something like that. A lot of those things have to be, they have to be touched in the field anyway. So they schedule it, pay for it directly with those guys. In those cases, what we would do is a simple startup program. Like you said, we'll send it out that way. But if you don't request anything, it typically just has what you mentioned before is a base startup program. For just for the initial soft start, get it going, get it charged, and then it's got to be fine tuned. Very cool. And so you're over over all the what I would refer to as the FSCs, but now they're technical yes. sales experts. Is that what it is? Technical sales support TSS is what okay. acronym right. we use. Yep, yep, yep. That's what I was trying it, to figure out. It used to be technical support supervisors, which was also TSS. Ironically, we, mm-hmm. when we changed it, we said, "Hey, we can do this." We called them TSS before. They're still called TSS today. Different names. I got a boatload of questions, but I want to make sure before I start yammering off here. Kevin, do you have anything for Dale before I start just asking a boatload of questions here? No, let's start firing away. All right, let's go. A little bit about Kaiser Warren. What do you guys really do differently than some of the other manufacturers? Like everyone has certain things that they do for their racks, for whether it be liquid injection or hot gas dump for for a lot of the superheat control and stuff like that. Like what are some things that that Kaiser Warren basically does different that sets you uh, above board than everyone else? Selfishly, I'd like to say our our service group is top-notch and they're as good as anybody in the industry because of the quality of the people. As far as Kaiser Warren goes, Kaiser Warren is a refrigeration. The Kaiser Warren brand is a refrigeration only, and 99% of everything we do is commercial refrigeration for supermarkets. The little bit that's not that is a little, just a tiny sliver of maybe some convenience store and some box store, self-contained. We call them plugins now from Europe, but yeah, so a little tiny bit of that and everything else is that. So we're not diluted. Also, Kaiser Warren, and since April of 2019, has been owned by EPTA, the EPTA Corporation, EPTA Refrigeration, who mm-hmm. is a refrigeration-only corporation, over a billion-dollar corporation now, probably number two behind the big H, and so oh, in the world. So they're very well recognized in the world, and and they're a refrigeration-centric company as well. Where some of our previous owners were, they were 
air conditioning companies and ice machine companies and walk-in cooler companies and a crane company and a truck company and the corporations were diluted. They weren't refrigeration only. So every time you got one of those owners, you were always what do you do? To, we don't understand. Yeah, yeah. We have yet to train. What is this Kaiser's <laughs> with refrigeration? Exactly. Stuff? You got to train. What is, what is refrigeration and why is this different from what we do? So that thing, refrigeration is its own thing. It doesn't cross over directly to air conditioning. It doesn't cross over directly to any other form, uh, even though the some of the technologies may cross over. Uh, commercial refrigeration is its own thing because of the way the orders are based, the direct to the end user, the majority of stuff is direct end user, where those other organizations all go through distribution channels and things like that. As far as Kaiser Warren, what do we do better? Again, we've made a name in the industry for doing, we're doing engineered, special built, custom order stuff. And and that's where we've been. And, And that's where the, the commercial refrigeration industry is even within customers, they'll, each customer will specify different, different technologies and different things, and they want different things. And that's why when you look at our website and you look at our product offering, it's very wide, all different sizes, shapes, heights, widths, double stack uh, equipment, racks. I'm talking about systems mm-hmm. mainly right now, but, but case is the same way. Everything under the rainbow. When you walk through our plant, you guys are always welcome to come down and see it, be my guest. <laughs> but when you walk through our plant, it's every color, every shape. It may be the same model, but it'll look different. And those of us that have been around a long time can walk through there and say, hey, this is customer A, this is customer B, this is customer C, just by the options because there'll be different trim packages, different things. So everything going through there is built to order. So we do almost no stocking of anything because... And that becomes your challenge during the peak season. The big customers, we will build ahead uh, for those, but it's, it's built to an order as far as specific orders. So how big in size? Because like we, we have, we had to order some racks. We, Coolsys does their own engineering. And yes. you know, then, then sometimes they will specify, okay, we will need this size of rack. And some manufacturers will be like, no, I can't because I, I don't do that big of. So what is the, some of the bigger racks that you guys have installed? Um, you said commercial, right? And I, and, and I know some... I consider industrial like rotary screw machines with a separator as big as a a damn rack. You know what I mean? Where I I think of commercial and light commercial as as racks and, but it can be big. I've seen some really big stuff when I went up to Arizona. So like how, how big of the MBTU you do on some of that Um, stuff, like your limit. We've had parallel compressor racks, not screws. We've done screws in the past, but mostly for specific customers uh, specifying that technology mm-hmm. on HFC racks, but we've done racks pushing a million and a half, two million BTUs on a single frame. Okay. So, so that's pretty large. It's not super industrial, but light industrial. Yeah. Uh, we've done that for some of the big box stores. One, one job in particular in Canada, it was over well over a million BTUs, a glycol rack with two uh, 50 ton heat exchangers mounted right to the rack. Um, and it was ginormous. It had six inch glycol pipes coming off of it, but it was still commercial refrigeration. Pretty much, again, anything under the sun, all the brands of compressors, all the brands of controllers, as far as frames, if somebody has a need for something like that, then uh, all they have to do is, is put in a request for a quote. So, Pretty sure that most racks don't go over a million BTUs because I'm pretty sure you have to have an operator on site. 
That's that is the case in in many parts of the world, uh, especially in Canada. We used to send a lot of racks to Canada, and I think you have to have on-site engineer in Canada, in certain parts of Canada, over uh, five hundred thousand, maybe. Yeah, I think in the U.S. it's it's just over a million. Because I, I was asking yeah. the other day because we got tagged in a store where we were going through, and I was doing a site survey, and it was one of the racks ended up being like a million and a quarter and then it was just a panic attack and then next thing you know <laughs> they're ordering equipment to shift it off and before anybody found out and it's yeah i didn't realize i'm like oh man I, I see it now that makes sense why there's always split up suction groups dale what about your guys co2 racks i've only seen one of your guys co2 racks at the trader joe's mm -hmm. your guys co2 racks in particular is there anything you guys like to do differently on them yeah, again, in EptaWorld and Kazuwarn, we have a lot of patented technologies for different situations, and some of those can be combined. We have the standard booster rack, which is fine for much of the country. You remember the old days when they would talk about the cutoff was like the Mason-Dixon line. Everything no. below that, people thought back in the day when we started doing CO2 15, 16, 12, 17 years ago that, oh, you're not going to be able to build these racks. The technology at that time was, there was no ROI or anything like that once you got below that line. What EPTA brought was some patented technology that's already proven in, in Europe. And, and we've got hundreds and hundreds of installations in the U.S. and many hundreds and probably thousands of just the FDE technology in, in Europe. So FDE is, is for the, the warmer climates. It also gives you it's full transcritical efficiency, meaning it runs better in transcritical mode than a standard booster rack, right? With the technology they put on there. So what sense? exactly is FTE? It, it's, full, it's full transcritical efficiency. And basically it diverts, it diverts. We lower the superheat on the medium temp compressors. We go through some special valves. We divert that. We flood the medium temp cases, which allows you to raise you can do it all in the controller. You raise the vapor temperature, which saves you energy on the uh, medium temp side. And then we divert that liquid that's flooding from those cases. It comes back through a separate tank. It looks very similar to the separator tank, mm -hmm. but it goes through another tank. They look almost like parallel separator tanks. And when you see the rack, if you walk up, it looks like it's got dual separator tanks. Typically, that's an FDE rack. Okay. So, then we divert that liquid that's flooding out of the temp when it gets above a sight glass, a certain level, we open another valve and we put that free liquid per se into the low temp uh, uh, cases, right? So everything then goes back through normal. It comes out of the, lo the low temp suction, comes back to the, to the rack. It goes through the, the, the medium temp side first and then discharges into the low temp. So you know everything else is the same. Like an intercooler. Yes. Basically. Yeah. So, you know, if you lower the superheat on a case, right, the TD is affected, right? So the lower the TD, it basically shrinks. So let's just say on a medium temp case, it's a high efficiency case. It has a four degree TD. Then that means, let's just say I got to operate 24 to maintain 28, right? So now instead of running six to eight degrees of superheat, I can run it all the way down to one to three. That liquid then comes out of that case, is goes to that tank that he's talking about. And what they do is they have a, their own separate controller, which I think now you guys have capability to mod bus or back net that into yes. some of the other energy management systems. Yeah, you can monitor it, but the, typically the control of that is self-contained for fail-safe reasons. 
So it's not, if you lose the main controller, that controller will still protect the rack because you don't, everything, all the safeties are in place to protect the this thing from going wild and flooding back or starving the low temp for liquid. And then you have a temperature problem there. So it, it cuts everything back to normal as soon as we don't have enough liquid available. So let me ask you this, Dale, how do you guys do your superheat mitigation then? Because when you're running transcritical, you have all that liquid vapor mix coming off the flash tank. So you're already running a little superheat mm-hmm. and running with the FTE at the same time. I know you're going to, you're going to pick up, you, you have that buffer tank there where the accumulator slash reservoir is there and it, it's going to drop into there, but how are you guys warming it up enough? Are you guys using a heat exchanger to warm the suction up before it hits the compressors or just hot gas injection? No. no, you're going to boil off all the liquid. You're going to have normal superheat in the low temp cases. So before it goes back to the rack, anything going back to the rack from the separator tank, we take the suction back to the rack and we take the liquid to the low temp cases, right? It's pretty neat how it works. It doesn't work. It's, it's not It's not 24-7. But when it's available, it comes on, it works. When all the conditions are right and you have enough load, it, it's not the whole store. It's only selected cases to match the load. So every store is different and you have to pick how many of the medium temp cases you're going to run in FTE. And I know it seems like a, a little bit of uh, focus there, but it, it really does work. And, and you can definitely see the difference. You pick up about 15, 20%, I think. In the in the medium temp cases by raising the superheat or lower I'm sorry lower than the superheat but we raise the suction pressure we lower the superheat and we pick up efficiency that way. No, it in theory it works great and then in in function it it does work. It just you, you have a, a couple more components in there than you would normally see. That I, I just wonder what your guys' superheat looks like at the compressors. Well, even- what happens is when they lower the superheat on these medium temp cases, it goes to this tank, right? But then there's another valve that shuts off the liquid from the regular flash right. tank here. And then now, because this is already at 400 or 420 pounds, it's still going to go to the 200 pound suction. So essentially right. they're pulling the liquid off of here. And then instead of driving the liquid off the flash tank, they're using that. So you never fill up this tank. Yeah, but Very similar to what Carnot does with their, with their intercool system. They just don't do anything with mitigating the superheat because the whole purpose of that, right? If they lower the superheat on this, that means they can float the suction even higher than what you typically would. Correct. You take all the load off the, you take a lot of the load off the low tent rack for sure. Oh yeah. And then then also you get better control of your valves because instead of having a 500 to 200 pound differential across the EVs, now you're down 400 to 200. You get a little bit better control of the EVs with that also. That's right. That's right. So we have these, we have this technology running in South Georgia and Phoenix City, Alabama, just across the river from us, the 15 minutes from our office here. And we've had the hottest summers the last couple of years as in history here. We have them in Florida. We have them in Texas. And these things are, they're doing what they advertise to do. This one particular gets you, it opens up the whole U.S. for the places you can't just put a standard booster and make it efficient, right? So it helps you with gain, regain that efficiency loss that you lose by running in transcritical. Dale, what about from the increased load on the flash tank when it's transcritical, the increased load on there, and you're dropping in to the accumulator, how is your superheat 
with it running FTE at the same time. Most of the time when we're running transcritical, like it doesn't matter what, who's manufacturer. Most of the time we struggle to get like 15 to 20 degrees of superheat at the compressors because there's so much liquid vapor mix coming off the top of the flash tank. Right. So much turbulence, right? Yeah, yeah, we haven't, we don't see that in FTE. Remember, you're lowering, you're artificially lowering the superheat on the medium temp cases. Um, and they're not going back to the rack, they're going to the low temp cases. You're shutting off the liquid to the low temp cases, the main liquid line. So everything's diverted. So it's giving you, you're doing work in the less efficient side to get to the more efficient side, if that makes sense. And we haven't, we don't have superheat problems because all that's part of the control strategy that the brains of how all this works together. If the liquid drops too low in that secondary tank going to the low temp cases, it shuts it off. Everything goes back to normal, raises superheat on the medium temp, lower the superheat never changes on the low temp. And then the rack superheat typically is unaffected. And if we overfill that tank, it'll also cut it out. It'll stop as well. If I'm getting too much liquid out of the medium temp case, the logic of it reads the, the all the sensors and and the pressure temperature and, and and it cuts off and everything goes back to normal. So all the fail safes are go back to normal superheat and and that 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 prevents you having a problem at the at the at the compressors. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to ask you one more question. So I, I've had mm -hmm. a couple guys that say under low load conditions, sometimes what they will have is is a little bit of oil issue where they're losing a little bit of oil and it's stacking up in here. And I know in the program, there's like a drain where every so often it's supposed to drain out the FTE tank, put it in, drain it out until it goes fully empty and then basically starts in an yeah. FTE mode again. Have you seen any of that? I haven't seen that. It, it basically, the oil free drains out of the bottom of that secondary separator, the mm -hmm. se secondary tank, the, the liquid comes right off the bottom. So anytime you're moving liquid, everything flows through the oil, everything that's trapped in that, it, it can't be trapped. Every time that line opens, it goes out. The only time I could see that happening is if you had a full tank, you had a little bit of oil. We've mitigated most of any oil issues that we saw very early on. And I'm talking about 10, 11 years ago, the first prototypes and stuff. We found that the oil separators were, were were big enough for the rack and the compressor usage, but they, if there was any little fluctuation, and we talk about this a lot in our training sessions, where if there's any flux, any deviation in the build piping, or they don't have enough traps, or have too many traps, or we have any type of logging in the store, that then so what we did to mitigate that was we just made the oil separators, we just made the oil reservoir bigger. So we just added another gallon of oil to the system that way, because you couldn't put enough oil in those little systems. Because remember, the compressors are smaller, the lines are smaller, the evaporator passes are smaller, and the total volume of oil in a TCO2 100,000 BTU compared to a HFC 100,000 BTU system is, is not even close. It's less than half. So Really? Usually it's, we're seeing like more oil with most manufacturers. Like we're, because we're, we're like the oil carryover rate is almost double when they're running transcritical. It seems like. Yeah, I don't, we just haven't had that many oil problems since we've changed the oil system. It's a standard high pressure oil system, typical of what you would have before. Um, like I said, we just put a larger temp rate. Uh, 
could drop uh, <laughs> vendor names, but yeah, we, we use still use the temp right on most of those or uh, uh, Westermeyer uh, high pressure. Are you guys both, running both high both pressure people. as in you're running straight discharge gas to the reservoir, then straight out of the reservoir to yes. high pressure OMCs, or are you guys doing the standard solenoid with the vent down to the flash tank? That's nah, OMCs, the CO2, the high pressure OMCs. I believe that's the last ones I've seen. Yeah, it's pretty much a bulletproof oil system with those. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it, 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 the good thing about it is, sorry to interrupt, but the good thing about it is for a standard technician, he's already familiar with that. So we, we really live and die by the KISS method. If you can keep it simple, and that's something we talk about a ton in our training, it's, TCO2 is not complicated if you're already proficient at standard parallel systems. It's not that complicated. All the normal piping practices, all the normal setup, you just have a couple of new components. And even the components that are in here are pretty fail safe if they're not, if they're not, if they're left alone and they're not changed or something like that. Most of the oil systems that we've had reported, and it's not a lot, again, go back to a setup, not enough oil in there originally, or we're logging oil somewhere in the system. Uh, regardless of whether it's in transcritical or subcritical. Today's episode is sponsored by the RefRushield RDP series differential pressure monitors from Westermeyer Industries, now available for transcritical CO2 systems in addition to other common pressures and refrigerants. When the filter element of your coalescing oil separator is contaminated, it can hurt your system's performance and efficiency. But how do you know when it's time to replace that filter? Wait too long to replace and you could end up with a nasty filter blowout. But replacing too often can be a waste of time and money. The answer is installing a differential pressure monitor. The RDP series differential pressure monitors, including the new transcritical CO2 model, are available now from Westermeyer Industries. To find out more information, email sales at westermeyer.com. That's W-E-S-T-E-R-M-E-Y-E-R-I-N-D-com. Maybe the FTE system where you guys aren't seeing as many issues too because... That's right. A lot of where I think a lot of the oil issues come in is when it's transcritical. We get a lot of oil carryover because we have all that cold, dense gas coming back because we're struggling to get pretty much every manufacturer I've seen. And I've started up pretty much everybody's racks. I mean, you struggle 10 to 15 degrees of superheat when we're running full tilt transcritical. They, get, yeah. it, it, they struggle because all that wet vapor coming off a flash tank just is this hammer in that suction group for the medium temp. And it just starts moving oil like crazy. Yeah, no, it, it the oil carry in, in these systems is very similar. Again, it, it, the, uh, yeah, we just, we've heard about the oil problems. I've actually had a lot of questions in training sessions. We probably touched two or 3000 technicians in the last two or three years. We've had them come up and after the meeting or during the meetings and training and ask about the old problems, this, the old problems, that. But most of those we're not familiar with, but we worked through some of that stuff and they said, oh, you're using this type of valve or this type of thing. It, it's different. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. So I'm, I'm not privy uh, to most of those. The other manufacturers probably should be more familiar with that, but yeah. It, we would stay in our, our lane and, and do what we do. And it's different. The FTE technology, we're probably doing more of those now than standard booster just because of our customer base and where they're located. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and some customers want to, 
even northern customers, the, the FDE system is not that super expensive. It doesn't cost you another compressor. It doesn't cost you another tank and a control and a valve and some extra programming. That's I mean, it, it pretty much pays for itself. If it's mitigating these oil issues, you're paying for yourself the first year in service calls and That's right. pulling your hair out for these oil issues that you guys aren't having. Is there an like a low ambient cutout for the FDE? There, there is, there is. But again, you, your conditions have to be right. Your load has to be right. And if there's not enough liquid available, it's going to cut on and off anyway. So it's not a continuous thing. It, it can go on and off multiple times a day, even when it's in, in transcritical or not in transcritical. So there okay. you go. That's the control box. So there's the controller. And it, and again, it, 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 it's pretty... It's pretty bulletproof. The programming is proprietary, but it's standalone. It doesn't matter. It's agnostic on what controller you're using. And like Brett said, we're working on getting those, the customers that do a lot of monitoring and heavy monitoring of the systems, they want to be able to see what it's doing, but it doesn't, it's not necessary, right? Normally, but yeah, so we have the FDE. I know we're, we, we've been talking about that for a long time. We also have... ETE, which is more new, we just started the first one up in the country for us, for Kazawarn. EPTA's got a lot of them in Europe, more than 200. And uh, that one started up with almost no issues. So a little bit about ETE, it's extreme temperature technology where FDE is more energy. This one is for those areas like Phoenix and, and Southern California and places like that. Mexico, we, we've got systems down there that struggle. Those are FDE systems, but and customers are really excited about that. And you can combine those two technologies. You can have ETE and FDE on the same frame. But again, that one's more, that one's a fairly new in North America. And the future state, which it's been talked about, there's information out there, just a, a snapshot is XTE. And that's using some new technology with the, I'm sorry that the I'm trying to, I'm having a brain lock here, but the XTE is the extra transcritical and it's the energy recovery. There you go. That's the ETE. That's the ETE thing. Yep. Brett's been doing his homework. He's been looking at uh, the Apple yeah, website. I've been looking at nothing but CO2 stuff for the past months. <laughs> he probably knows more about it than I do because I, I don't get to touch it as much as I like to. I sit behind a desk most of the time. We've got some really, we got some really good technicians out there that that see it and and live it every day. And those guys, to them, this is just normal stuff. Now, there's nothing special to our field guys that are proficient in this stuff, and they just handle it like a normal cell. Is they don't get excited whether it's FTE or standard booster system co2 startups to them are just normal we've got hundreds of applications now so it almost cool. looks similar to like an injector type system almost yeah I've, but I've, we don't we've stayed as a corporation we stayed completely away from injectors because mm -hmm. of early testing and early testing in europe mm -hmm. uh EPTA, that wasn't the direction that EPTA engineers and, and and wanted to go and i think they they're convinced they got a better mousetrap so i'm um, not sold on injectors yet yeah, I, 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 we tested them. I'll tell you what, full disclosure, we tested injectors. We had a test rack probably 10 years ago, and we never, some of the claims and stuff, we just could never prove it out. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not true, but we couldn't make it, we couldn't make it better. We couldn't make it better than just the standard booster system. And that was our, that was our hangout with the test stuff.
for serviceability, there's just too much going on for most guys to be able to right. troubleshoot, especially with CO2, how new it is. And you got 10 solenoids in there, you got springs, you got gaskets, you got O-rings, and it's just, there's just so much more to fail. Than, exactly. Than having and a I, valve. I think, I, I think you would get that sympathy from our lab guys at the time, because I'm pretty sure they spent more time working on the injectors than they did running the injectors. So, <laughs> And, and they were fairly new then. Let's be fair. I don't want to give injectors a bad name. I, I We just don't do it. We don't have to do it. Right. And that technology t- tends to be even more expensive than some of the stuff we're talking about. So, so the end user e-diagram, it looked like it, you guys were incorporating heat recovery back into yeah. it? Yes, you okay. can. Heat recovery. Now, the standard racks, I know one of Brett's questions, I'm jumping ahead, Brett, but one of your questions about hot gas defrost and things like that, mm-hmm. it can all be it can all be done. Uh, we're not currently, we're working on the funnel. We have cases out there running hot gas on other people's, other manufacturers, mm-hmm. hot gas. And, and look, I'm doing air quotes when I say hot gas because hot gas on CO2 is, is a misnomer because if you're going to get real hot gas, it would be, 1700 1600 pounds mm-hmm. of pressure going out there to your coal and that's no bueno right so it works great when you have a, a 120 bar system and they're doing yeah. hot like full high pressure hot gas it works quick oh it's, it's, it's <laughs> quick. yeah i bet it's i bet it's very fast so oh, uh, yeah lightning fast but yeah like we we have some hot gas stores and i'm just not i'm not impressed with it it's it's using the flash tank pressure. So you're basically at 38 degrees, 38 degrees saturated. And that's barely it's, anything. Like the only thing you right. can do is maybe float in the point of hot gas. The only thing you could do to mitigate that a little bit is change the set point of the flash tank. Right, Kev? Z- zero zones so far has been the best. They're using straight discharge gas, but they're using a regulating valve and stepping it down. So you get the temperature, but it's still like 650 pounds so it's still technically almost below freezing hot gas saturation. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's 40, 40, 40 something degrees. And yeah. if that valve fails, you're chirping a relief. So it, it's just no matter which any way anybody does it until they, they lift the pressure, the regulations a little bit, it's just really poor to frost. Yeah. And look, I, I've been a refrigeration mechanic for 40 plus years. We already established that, but I love hot gas in the old days because you can make hot gas do tricks. You can turn it up, you can turn it down. We can float the head pressure. When a coal's iced up, it's super quick to, to, to take care of it with some extra, if the hot gas is the problem. But today there's something, if you're building a new store to me for my money, if it was my money I was spending, I would just stick with standard first CO2 transcritical. If it was my money, I'd stick with standard transcritical and electric defrost because of those. It's not hot gas. You're not getting the benefit like you did in the old days where you took a a 45 minute off cycle defrost and made it eight or a 40 minute, 30 minute electric defrost and made it 12. You're not getting that. You're still getting those. You have to keep adding time because people will call us up and say, hey, what's your defrost schedule for our CO2 hot gas? I go, probably the same (laughs) as electric because it's not enough heat. It isn't. And like even like the medium temp multi-decks, they're still like 25, 30 minute defrost. That's right. It's still, it's the juice isn't worth the squeeze at that point. So I I, I, I tend to agree with that. I have a question since you're the manufacturer. 
And a lot of your coils now, just like any other manufacturer, are, are doing high efficiency coils, right? Trying to get that TD down as low as possible because by doing that, we're able to float the suction and save energy, mm -hmm. right? Now, if your case is rated for 26 degree saturated suction, now, as well as I do on most transcritical systems, I'm gonna say most, typically you're running 20, 18 degree saturated, okay? And you have your set defrost that it's supposed to be. If you are running that defrost, or if you're running the saturated suction lower than, than what the case was designed for, your defrost spec is for if that case is running at that saturated suction. So there would be an increase of that time because you're adhering more moisture and more frost onto that quill. Please tell me I'm right, because I, otherwise I'm going to look like an idiot. <laughs> no, 100%. 100%. So what we tell folks, that, that, that even in electric defrost, different systems, especially TCO2 systems, the boil-off, we call it a boil-off rate. We used to call it drip time or, or pump-down time. It's not really that. It's pump-out time is really the, the correct way to say it with, with CO2. What I recommend for the setup for those cases, especially on the standard electric low temp case, right? Let's mm -hmm. talk about that. So you got a minus 12, minus 10, minus 11 about temp. W what you do there is you want to shut the, you want to shut the flow off the CO2 mm -hmm. five to 10 minutes before you turn on the electric heater. And this will help you because it doesn't shock it. If you're running the heater, when you're trying to pump out that coil, you're not doing anything. You're wasting electricity is what you're doing. Oh, yeah. So the coil will actually get colder while you're running the heat and pumping out the, the CO2 liquid because when it boils at a lower temperature than the evaporator temperature. So we call it, let's put a, it doesn't, the customer doesn't even see it. If they're watching the temp in the case, it can go in that pump out mode. And for the first five or six, seven minutes of that pump out mode, the temperature may actually drop a degree and not go up. I, I say that you save the electricity. Then once the coil starts warming up on its own, just by pumping it down, then you turn on the heat and you're getting the full of the full effect and the full benefit of the electric heat at that point. And that will actually shorten your time over design temp. Okay. Yeah. As an industry, like it, they need to start moving towards, EPRs for all this stuff because they all these cases, the, these racks will maintain like a plus 15 SST or a plus 18 SST for the flash tank. And then you have an entire store full of coils that need plus 25, plus That's 28, right. plus 30. Like it's gotten insane with some of these TDs, but these racks are still like in the dumpster with evap temps. That's where a we lot of that, a lot of that's driven. I'm sorry. Kevin, a lot of that's driven by the the lowest evaporator on the rack, or the, probably the red meat case, the open red meat case on medium temp, the ice cream on low temp. That's what's driving the rack suction. Mm -hmm. And it's really complicated to start doing multiple suction groups on, on TCO2 and things like that. Well, we usually get to the point, like on the TCO2s, where we can't float over a certain amount. Like we could float up to right. a certain amount because once you hit that, you need that like 70 to 80 pound minimum for the oil differential for, between the flash tank and the oil reservoir. Unless you're running a true high pressure oil system, you run into these issues where you won't feed the OMCs. Because if they don't see that 50, that if they get to the 50 pound oil differential, they seem to get lazy and not want to feed oil. I got you. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Like I said, early days of TCO2 stuff and direct expansion CO2 
there were no manuals. There were no things. And we were learning the hard way how to try to control that exact situation you're describing. And what we would do there is we would start messing with the maximum flow of the pulse valve or the stepper valves or whatever's on there. So we would reduce it down when the valve thought it we would set the valve max open until 25% or 30%. And then when the, when it, when the system told it to go hundred percent open, it didn't overshoot, but it didn't, there are little tricks like that you can do nowadays The the valves, they do have smaller that that they can do to, to, to make that better. But a lot of that stuff is, is learning on the fly and every job and every customer is not the same because of the length of runs and the thing. And they go exactly how many minutes is, well, turn it on and watch it and see when the temperature starts moving, that's where you set your, that's where you'll set your, your pump down time. I've seen on some, some manufacturers where like they'll have a, they'll have the frozen food suction set for, let's just say two, 210 pounds. And then they'll mm -hmm. actually, what they'll do is they'll put the frozen food on a totally separate header. But right. the only thing separating that is an EPR. So they're basically mitigating the pressure, raising the pressure, because as well as I do, transcritical racks like a steady load, right? They don't like all this shifting on and off, on and off, which is going, when you have that, that affects your flash tank pressure, that affects the cycling right. of the compressor. So if they were to do that on, let's just say, all the high efficiency cases, still run down to that minus, or I'm sorry, the plus 18 on the medium, and then just basically put a little EPR in between that and the, and the other portion of the other cases that are running a high efficiency, we wouldn't have to run these longer defrosts because like I said, I've seen it done on the low temp, but I've just never seen it actually right. applied to the medium temp, but it would make more sense, especially with the control. Cause like sometimes some customers and I'm not going to go into the specifics, but like they're very adamant, like it has to be this defrost. That's what the manufacturer says. I'm like, <laughs> but then I'm in, I'm in a pissing match with them back and forth. I'm like, no, yeah. because we're running a lower SST. And that's the whole reason yeah. why I asked you that question, because I've had this argument with a bunch of people. I'm yeah. like, no, we have to run yeah. lower. Yeah, I, I, I probably have lost my voice more than once trying to talk through that whole situation, right? With customers and, and people and the contractors in the field, they go, no, we said it exactly like you. It's, it's not exactly like the sheet says because pull back the curtain. So when, when they test the cases to ASHRAE standard, they're running it at the design of app temp, at the design conditions, everything's perfect. The case is perfectly loaded, perfect situation, no extra airflow. And you don't, it's not, that's not the real world. You have to adjust that. Sometimes it's lower. If you go to an area in, in Canada, Northern Canada, where it's very dry mm -hmm. and the, we've registered stores in, in 15, 20% humidity. Oh you know? gosh. You, you don't even need defrost. You can skip defrost on those stores. Yeah. So it's all about. It's never, I said it, 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 when I hear the words, I said it exactly like your spec sheet. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. It's going to be that discussion again. So what about everything else it, it, the gas temp and the store temp and the humidity and everything, all of those things really can, can really push that stuff uh, out of whack. So we put disclaimers and everything in there saying, oh, the other big thing is, is so you've got an ASHRAE standard meat case that's, that's going to run exactly like it says it's going to run in those perfect conditions, but it's at a plus 26 or 27 and, but the meat manager wants the maximum meat temp in the case at 28, that doesn't add up. Right. Mm -hmm. So the only way you get there is they manually lower that suction temp in the case to something 
lower than design to get the desired maximum product in. So it, when you do that, then you have to adjust the defrost schedule. Simple, right? So if I'm running a plus 27, 26 at a 20, then I'm going to, I'm going to need more defrost because I'm going to build more ice. I may need more frequency and I may need longer. And I wish everybody would understand that because some customers like live in by the sheet and there is no ifs, ands, or buts and you're not convincing them otherwise. And then, well, yeah. and then you yeah. get yelled at because uh, how come you can't fix this? Because I want you to change the defrost. What needs to happen is like on the manufacturer things is this is the defrost if you're running at these exact specs, this saturated section, this ambient temperature, this ambient relative right. humidity. And whenever you're running outside of those things, you should, they should just bump up that, that bump the yeah. saturated section and see what the true defrost is and just be like, okay, if you're at this saturated section, it's going to be this long of defrost. If you're at this saturated section, it's going to be extended, right? A hundred percent. That argument and that discussion has been had thousands of times in, in all of our, in the world, in, in mainly in the summer, it mm -hmm. usually comes up a lot, right? It's like, everything's perfect. Everything's perfect to store. We set up exactly like this. But your humidity is drifting up to 60, 62, 64% at nighttime. They're shutting back. They're clo closing the store up. And I, or it's drifting up during the daytime. Or they have night setback. Or, and they're like, no, well, that adds defrost time. No, we set up exactly like a sheet. But you're not following the conditions exactly like the sheet. But yeah, I understand 100%. I, I feel for the technicians that are trying to do the right thing and say, hey, all I need to do is add 10 minutes or add one more defrost to this and my problem goes away and it, and it's conditional, right? It, it's, it's the combination of the evaporator temperature, the humidity, the maximum humidity, not the average humidity. It's never been average, right? Mm -hmm. It's not average. Mm -hmm. It can't go up to 65 at night and be 45 in the daytime. That's not okay. Average you're gonna have to... It's right in the ballpark. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, it's 55 average, no, max, maximum. It's maximum. Read the paper. I would right? interested to see what like lab tests would show like, running at a plus 18 SST versus a plus 26 SST, like what, what they call yeah, for it. That, that would, for the CO2 cases at least, that would solve a lot of defrost-related issues, having two different specs for that. Because that, that's a problem on every single job. They come out spec plus 26 and you're a plus 28 and every single rack is running a plus 18 or a plus 22 to, just to get, get the flash tank I understand 100%. Yep, yep, yep. And, and and again, there have been adjustments over time to those specifications trying to uh, alleviate that that confusion and that problem. But yeah, they, they definitely run different and you have to and, and again, it, it can be as simple as the meat manager at this store says I want my cases to run 20 two degree discharge error. I don't care what the sheet says. So I, I don't want to see my, th my, my discharge error over 22. That's it. The case, the coal's running 25, 24, 25. It's hard to get there. Well, if you're running FTE, just flood the hell out of it. There yeah, you go. Yeah, yeah, you can do that. You can do that. That's what you tell him. I said, we need to put an FTE system in here so we can run it down lower. I, I got another question. So you said about the ET yeah. and I know like on the 20, 26th, I think that I'm going to be out in Cali and, and you said that I could tour your new training facility. Does that have an ETE out there? That is FTE. That, that, that is FTE. That is FTE. Let me think about that. There may be an ETE system. On now that system is going to be converted to XTE. The uh, You can get a peak. The, the pressure exchanger is mm -hmm. there. 
mm-hmm. it's not installed the last time i saw it that was just a but but we have a pressure exchanger out there and and that'll be that's in the works to get that installed but you can see it it's right. in the box um, where's your guys training centers at do you guys have more than just one we have the one in orange county uh that that brett's going to on the 27th that's orange county california and and we have one at the home at the headquarters building in columbus georgia nice the other question we talked a bunch about co2 and the fte the et et and stuff are you guys still doing glycol racks and pump liquid overfeed because i know with a lot of the stipulations people are trying to get as many credits as possible and then but let's just say a rack is only 10 years old and they can still get some life out of it they could potentially convert those cases do a remodel change out the cases to co2 rated cases the piping out to that and and, and run liquid pump overfeed and have the the rack that was there basically doing turn that into a cascading type system are you guys doing any of that or are you guys just Hey, transcritical CO2 all the way for right now. That's a hard, it's a hard question to answer because there's not a, there's, <laughs> let me explain. So we are, our direction, the corporation's direction is all the focus and all the technology is around TCO2. We have built hundreds and hundreds of liquid overfeed. We still show liquid overfeed on our website list of, of equipment, potential equipment, but we're very hesitant even to bid liquid overfeed at this point, but because again, there, there's not a lot of new development in that. All the technology, all the efforts being spent on on, on Ford and building the new technology in, in the TCO2, which is what Europe's done. So we're following that lead. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there's almost none of that there. It's almost exclusively TCO2 equipment now for CO2. Here's the thing. It's been done and we've been doing it here for many years. I think a first liquid overfeed system we did was about 15 or 16 years ago now. Mm -hmm. And it's the three strikes you're out roll, but they're very expensive to build. They're super expensive to install. They're really expensive to work on and there's no energy, right? So it really compared to TCO2, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't make financial sense. And the life cycle cost is going to be quite a bit higher. So, oh yeah. The maintenance cost alone is just, yeah. is, is insane. Yeah. Like, yeah. A lot of studies were done on that with some of the, the largest retailer in the world. And they were like, ah. but, but again, I, people still talk about it and, and there's, there may be a place for that. Like Brett said, with some specialty stuff and we can build it, but what we're not really doing at this point is branching off into combinations or for lack of a better term, snowflake racks. We have a full line of all different types of technology and all different types of things. And and that's where the focus is. And personally, forget about who I work for or anything like that. From a technical standpoint, it makes sense to me. The sooner the industry and the customer base kind of lines up and everybody's going and, and they don't want to, but it's, if they were all going the same direction, that's a shorter putt for the technology gap in the field, training technicians and things like that. Because if you should be able to work, if you learn to work on a TCO2 system from us, you ought to be able to work on any of them mm-hmm. and vice versa. But if you're working on a liquid overfeed system today with a glycol medium temp and a, and low tip, and tomorrow you go down the road and you're working on a new TCO2 rack with FTE or ETE, those are, it's like apples and oranges. 
So my personal thing is very selfish that we have this huge gap in the, in the installer base and the service mechanic base. We don't have enough people to do the work that we have and definitely not enough people <laughs> when you introduce all the complexity and all the stuff that's coming in the next few years with the regulations and things with CO2 and EPI, I know they just extended that out to 27, which gives a little breathing room for some folks, but, but my, my, from just a selfish standpoint of trying to help center and correct the learning gap and the learning curve for everybody in the field, including you guys that are out there working on it day in, day out. If we all, if the, if everybody would go in the same direction, that would simplify that from that aspect alone, it makes sense to me because if you think back, a parallel rack was a parallel rack, right? Mm. It's not that way anymore. Oh, this is a parallel booster system. This is a parallel liquid overfeed. This one is a combination liquid overfeed and glycol system. This one's now I've got plumbing involved. I got B and G pumps. I got big, it's, it adds complexity. Yeah. Tons of complexity and just having to know all it's like a car mechanic's got to work on every manufacturer's car, right? That doesn't happen anymore. There's very few of those guys left, especially with new cars, right? Except for refrigeration mechanics. We work on every manufacturer, every flavor of thing. Because people call and ask Kevin and I, like, hey, I got this type of rack. I got this kind of thing. I'm I'm like, all right. We want training on them. Yeah. All right. Sure. Cool. And then you have to take in all the different different manufacturers of different components, different level sensors, different. There's so much different stuff. Like I started on this presentation and it like it was 200 slides and then ended up being 240. And now it's up to about, I think, 372. Wow, that's crazy. Just from in our own catalog, you look at the complexity of all the different technologies and all the different systems. Then you factor in the multiplier of all these systems can have four, five, six control manufacturers. They can have a combination of electronic valves versus mechanical valves, electronic EPR versus mechanic. I'm talking about just standard DX systems, right? Yeah. Even that complexity within the own manufacturer confuses people. It's, oh, what does it have? It's, I don't know. What's the model serial number? I don't know because every order can be different. It's every controller under the sun, every version of those controllers under the sun and and, and so on and so forth. So even that, everybody will get better all the way around if if we settle on what the end game kind of looks like. And it may be different for small stores, for standard 40, 50,000 square foot stores. And it may be different for big box, 100 plus thousand, but those things we're trying to fit all those needs into a, a small as envelope as possible because it makes it better for the end user. It makes it better for the installers. It makes it better for the customer. Kevin, I only have one more question. So if you want to, is there anything you want to ask? No, it's been going with the conversation, the flow. So go ahead and ask away. So I have something, I don't know if I'm allowed to share it. I got this from one of someone it's EC, ECO two mini. Can I show a picture of that or no? Sure. Okay, I just want to make sure. I don't want to get anyone in trouble, especially myself. So I want to talk a little bit about this. Not a lot of people are are really delving in this. You have the, the field of Revacol that's starting to do this. I think Carrier might have some little units like this. What made you guys decide to start delving into this this avenue? Mainly the fit for that is is small applications and, and conversions, right? This So if you're in California and you need a, a single lineup, 
and the regulations say can't it can't be dx and and i don't have any more capacity on existing systems that mm. that's the fit if you're doing a remodel you can use these small units and smaller capacities for things now there are not a lot of these commercially out there there's only a couple of them running in the field as mm. betas but the customer base is very interested in the single compressors now it's probably the most complicated single compressor unit you'll ever work on because of cramming in all the CO2 technology. And it's also a Dorian compressor, which is the only compressor that has internal compound cooling. So it's almost like a Carlisle compound yeah. compressor, except for it's for CO2. Correct. Correct. Really? I want to talk to Doreen now. So it's a yeah. mini, so these are mini booster systems or are they? It is, it is, but it's a single compressor. And it's small capacities, much smaller than you can get on any parallel multi-compressor cascade rack, right? So oh. it's a single compressor. And when they come in three different, I think, and I don't, Brad, I've been a minute since I looked. I think it says it on there. The capacities, there, there's three different capacities you can get. I think it's like 30, 50, and 80 or something like that. So are they running these with medium? There, there it is. There it is right there in the middle. 40, 70, and 100. So are they running these, Dale, with a medium temp also? So say you have a walk-in cooler and a walk-in freezer. Are they able to run the walk-in cooler and walk-in freezer? Or is it just one fixture? It's just low temp. And they're, they're single temp. They're single temp. So they, I believe they can be medium or low, but they have to be – it's a single temp. You can't dual temp, and it's for one – typically it's one circuit. Yeah, so, because Kevin, think about it, right? So if you if you went transcritical, that compressor for the medium temp side would have to double in size, right? Because of all the right. gas that you're going to get from the flash tank. So you, I guess the only way you could probably do that is like a mini with the fractional horsepower compressors in order to get that extra capacity, you, right? You, you would need more compressors. Makes yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah, and I think, that, I think the marketing on this is you're looking at something that can fit a gap or maybe you have a store that you want to go co2 but you need to buy some period of time till you have to like maybe you've got a five-year-old rack or a 10-year-old rack and you're not ready to replace it but you need to add something and you can't add anything to that rack then they can drop this in and there's no car there's no footprint there's no so i mean so it seems like a good application for no penalty. convenience stores and stuff yep convenience it could stores. be for that it's a little big for most convenience stores still um uh, you know what? This would be good. Exactly what we just talked about. Remember how we were talking about how we have to have that one. It's usually the meat box, right? Because yeah. now the meat cases are all high efficiency. So it's usually the meat box. It has to be at the 18. So you could potentially use this one unit. It wouldn't even have to be compound at that point. It would just That's be right. just regular medium temp tra transcritical system. And then you That's could right. basically raise the suction pressure on all the rest of the crap uh, on all the rest of the cases in the medium temp. And then that this would actually save you even more money on your rack operation, right? Like on some of the stores that we have, they'll have a rack and then they have miscellaneous single systems basically right. run the coldest SST. So you can raise that up higher. That NEMA box on the right hand end, guys, is, BFD, is, it's gotta is, be. The, is the BFD, right? Because <laughs> it has to be 100% weatherproof because that's outside. <laughs> Those things are so ridiculously heavy. They are heavy. The dance ones, I don't know who designed those, but yeah. I'm pretty sure they will take a rifle round. <laughs> I was going to say they probably MRAPs or something they made out of them before they made those. I don't know how many whole saw arbors I've blown apart trying to. <laughs> it will break your wrist.
<laughs> I, I just did a whole bunch. Of, I, I, they were like 10, seven horsepower drives. I'm like, I could put these all day long by myself. Yeah. I, go to, I go to pick up one of these boxes and about blow my back out. I didn't realize they're almost 300 pounds. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure if a tornado comes, the VFD will still be sitting there. Sort of tipped over on top of the VFD because the VFD is going to flip yeah. over. Yeah, yeah, it just turned up on his end because it's so heavy. So he was loading a bunch of these uh, up on on the roof, and he's like, yeah, we, we were like playing with the lift, just trying to get it up. It just did not like that weight, that extra weight to try to get <laughs> it up there. Yeah, with, with me and one VFD on the lift, I'm sitting there jumping, and I lost weight too. Like I'm sitting there, you gotta be fucking kidding me. <laughs> I'm sitting there jumping, trying to get the lift to go up more. I'm like, come on, you gotta give me like another. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. What else we got, guys? Uh, Man, hold on. I'll, I'll, let me check my list of questions because, like, I was trying to be as prepared and professional as humanly possible with this interview. So I want to, I want to make a, a good impression. I don't know. We already went through the high ambient strategies because basically that's what the ETE and the and the FTE is, right? No liquid pump. And 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 for anybody that that may listen to this podcast, Brett, make sure you can put the link in there if you want. But a, a lot of this information that you shared is available on our website currently. I, I'm assuming that's where you got most of it. But yeah, if they go to okazawan.com and and the thing, you can read it up on there. There's some. There's some literature on there that different things, some flyers you can download for for our maybe like this one right here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's a lot of good information in there about the different options that are available and things like that for anybody that's interested in, in this stuff. Also, uh, I just want to promote the training that we, we've got upcoming in ARCS. We've got a couple of those. We'll, have, we'll start to put out uh, more definite schedule for the Orange County, California, the training center in, in Columbus as, as that gets open. That's been delayed a little bit because the scope keep changing. The scope keep changing faster than we can build the place because we want to have the latest technology in there. And they keep saying, oh, okay, hey, this would be a good place to test CO2, right? Or things like that. So we need to add that. We need to change it. We need to do this. So yeah, those things are, we're being very strate strategical with that one. And, and, uh, but we're going to, we're going to be going wide open. There's a lot of training stuff going on. A lot of it's free to the industry. Mm -hmm. Some of the in-house stuff, hands-on, there may be a fee for those, but all the NAs, NARCS stuff, Danielle and her group, that those are awesome events. And I enjoyed that immensely because it's all technicians, right? And that's where my heart is. And I'll make time for technicians any day. <laughs> I, I don't want to speak bad of it because it was a great show, but I did FMI Energy last week in, in Baltimore. But yeah, I would have rather been with 400 technicians than 400. I was, I was upset I didn't get to go to FMI. Like, it's our it was good. Place. It was really good. He just like, it was... laid it down and said, no, nah, it wasn't that big a deal. <laughs> oh, it wasn't that it cool. was terrible. It was terrible. Food was terrible. The, the, the place was crappy. The yeah. smile on your face is telling me that you're lying. So just stop right there. <laughs> it was good for me because post-COVID and all that, th th there's a lot of people I saw there I haven't seen in eight, nine, 10 years. You know, it's 15 years. It's, it's a very small industry. A lot of people have... have they're still around that I knew I ran into a guy I used to do installs for 30 plus years ago and I hadn't seen him. He just was there for a event for a customer. And I was like, he came up to our booth and he asked somebody if I was there. And I was like, yeah, we, we talked for an hour, just catching up on old times. So I hadn't seen him in 30 plus years. And 
uh, I used to do a lot of work for him back in the day when I worked for a contractor. Very cool. Very cool. For a shameless plug for Danielle and Morgan and, and Jeannie, the, if you go to the NASRC.org, all the trainings that actually went down, a lot of them that were recorded are actually up there. A lot of the PowerPoint presentations are also up there for download. There's tons of different resources. It's not just all CO2 stuff. So if you're you're working on propane self-contained units, I know AHT did did a presentation. I know True was out there last year. And it like anyone that had anything to do with natural refrigerants was out at that event. And it's just gonna get better. And just because that one was so popular and it was such a hit, that's what made Danielle Morgan and Jeannie basically be like, hey, we, we need to do more of these. Like, where can we do it? Yeah, we begged them to come east uh, with that. with that, And we said, look, we'll sponsor it. We'll train. We'll invest our, we'll donate our time and, and our money to the cause. And mm-hmm. because we want to build, we, we as an industry, I believe, really everybody wants to help promote the trades and promote the industry and promote the natural refrigerants. And that's my mission for the last years I've got left in my career. However that many that is four or five, six years, whatever it is. Right. 20. (laughs) No, no. Get you in that little rolly cart and just roll you around. No, you can put me in a glass box if you want after I'm gone, but uh, roll me around. (laughs) When I'm rolling around, it's going to be so rare. It'll be in a golf cart. It won't be <laughs> with the golf clubs behind me. It won't be on a, on a scooter. Oh, uh, but yeah, no, I, I just feel like that's the cause that, that I get uh, a lot of stuff out of. And, and again, that's not what I get paid to do uh, most days, but that's where my passion is. And, and I want to see it get better. I don't want to, I want to leave this industry in worse shape than it was when I came into it. Really, I want to see it. I want to see it get better, and whatever I can do to promote that, I will. And 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 like I said, I almost never. We we've done a lot of stuff for Steve. I'm having brain lock now at Southern Edison. Those are all free trainings, and, and we'll have two or three hundred people sign up and, and do a lot of training uh, for those as well. It's online. It's two days, three hours each day, and and but yeah. So those requests are starting to pile up uh, mm-hmm. a little bit because there, there aren't enough of us to go around. But things like the NARCS and our training center events and things like that, we'll start to standardize those and have a regular cadence of, of things that people can participate in and come to. And, and I encourage everybody to get as much of that training as you can. Look, I'm 60 years old in a couple of weeks and I'm still learning stuff every day in this business. And the worst thing you can do is say, I know everything and I don't. That's my little words of wisdom from the old guy. Dale, it's been a pleasure. And you answered every single question. I, I'm, man, it was a really good interview. Kevin, you have any last things? No, it was a great conversation. Yeah. Right. Anytime, guys. Anytime. Just holler at me and let me know what your needs are. And Brett, touch base with me on that visit out there. And we'll make sure we got you straightened out on that too. Yeah, I, th- I, think, yeah, I think it's the 26th. I'll be rolling out there. I have a reminder in my calendar to give you a holler. Okay. Did you touch base with our guy out there that I sent you the info? Mm, might have forgot. I don't know. Well, anyway, <laughs> okay. a, we got time. We got time. Uh, we'll, we'll make it happen. Dale, hold on one second. Hey, guys, we'll talk to you guys next time. And thanks for listening.